0: Welcome to the John Sandoz podcast. This episode was recorded to mark the centenary of Sophia Tolstoy's death. You can glimpse her in the characters of her husband's books, but Sophia deserves attention in her own right. We invited Tolstoy biographer and translator Rosamond Bartlett and academic and writer Sophie Ratcliffe for an evening to celebrate her life. Upstairs at the bookshop, Sophie begins the evening.
1: Thank you for having us. Arabella and Magnus and Johnny in absentia. It's wonderful to be here. Um, we are here to think about Sophia Tolstoy, or um, I think Rosamund's going to help me with naming people properly soon, or Sophia Andreevna or, um who died a hundred years ago this week on the 4th of November although
2: that is according to the old calendar okay (laughs) so what day
1: would it be on the new calendar So 13 days behind oh really oh that's fantastic so we can do it all again (laughs) in 13 days oh that's that's just actually really terrific news um so uh, sophia was um a writer a photographer a craftswoman a mother a curator a grandmother, an archivist, a decorator, and so many, many more things. And so we're really delighted to be here. I'm delighted to be here with Rosamond, who, um, as Arabella said, is a biographer, the author of Tolstoy, Russian Life, which you can uh, buy later. If you can't, if you don't get, get one, you order it later, immediately. A uh, translator of uh, many things, particularly amazing translations of Chekhov and of Tolstoy, including Anna Karenina. And we're here together for many reasons which are distinct to our own writing research, but also something I think we had in common because we wanted to do something to remember a person that we thought was really, really interesting and compelling, but who's been known primarily for being a wife of someone else, for so being a wife. So and so we felt Sophia in Truth had so much more a story that w- we wanted to tell, and that's what we wanted to talk about today. Um, we were talking last night on the phone, uh, and we've talked m- many times before about this, but you mentioned... Uh, that you've been to Sophia's grave recently, and I was wondering whether you could just begin, Rosamond, by telling me what 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 compels you to talk about Sophia tonight, and and maybe a bit about that.
2: Well, when I re- remembered that it was the centenary of her death, and I, I was remembering the sort of you know the bleak times in 1919. It was a pretty you know grim time in Russia. Uh, there she was, you know, her husband had died nine years before, and she'd been left really um, and. I was just remembering also that I would be going to Yasna Paljana in September and I thought, what, you know, no one ever really marks the uh, centenary of the wife of a famous writer. and. She put up with so much and I had such wonderful conversations with Sophie when she was just in the closing stages of publishing her own wonderful book uh, that draws in the life of Sophia Tolstoy and Anna Karenina Um, and we we both thought that it would be a wonderful thing to somehow mark the occasion. Uh, I'm remembering back to 2010 when my Tolstoy biography came out and there was an awful lot that happened that year to uh, mark that death. Although, ironically, uh, nothing happened in Russia. You know, all the countries <laughs> of the world. And I ended up writing an article for Open Democracy actually about the fact that Tolstoy was a bit of a problem uh, for the Russian establishment now because you know he was a vegetarian and he was a pacifist and <laughs> he'd been excommunicated by the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, uh, so that was interesting, but there was an awful lot, you know, there was a there was a film wasn't there made the last station that came out yeah. and uh, <laughs> lots of events. But um, I don't know of any other event anywhere in the world that is marking the death of Sophia Tolstoy. And uh, I, I said a little prayer when I was there in September. I was there with a group of um, Australian <laughs> lovers of Russian literature, and I was leading a tour for a a bookshop in Sydney uh, with the wonderful name of Better Red Than Dead. (laughs) 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 one of of our, um, one of our, one of the items on the itinerary was of course going to to see the Tolstoy family (laughs) graves and they're in a church and amazingly there was a, there was a service going on and apparently there were never services these days in that church and uh, it was nice to go to her grave and I'm sorry to have a picture but there were fresh flowers on it and of course all the Tolstoy family are there uh, except for Tolstoy himself because he was the first person to have a civil burial in Russia and he's buried uh, in a mound in the grounds and you have to go on a pilgrimage every time you go on a visit to Yasna Palyana uh, to go and visit his grave so it's it's separate anyway so if you, I'd like to ask you what drew you to Sofia Tolstoy? Um,
1: really quite accidentally and I, I sort of realized that I was interested in Sophia Tolstoy quite late in the writing of the book that I just published this year and the book didn't really start it start it was going to be partly well, it was going to be it's about love and it's about death and it's about trains and it's about me mm-hmm. so um, I, it's 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 a memoir and I was trying to write honestly about grief I was bereaved as a child as Tolstoy was Um, and I wanted to write honestly about the effects that bereavement has on a life that follows Um, and so I set out to write honestly about things like how difficult it is to be part of a happy family or or happy families or unhappy families or how how alike they are and I wanted to be honest about things like that but I also wanted to be uh, honest about the way in which imagination can become part of our reality and so I intertwined my story about love and marriage and affairs I had or didn't have with the story of two other women, and one of them was uh, Anna Karenina. So, in order to write my book, I decided, as someone who had only ever read Anna Karenina in translation, I'm not a Russianist, but I decided I wanted to uh, find out. And I don't know about you, but for me, she's someone who seems exceptionally real and vivid and as if she truly existed. And so I thought, how can I get closer to her? So I went to Russia to try and relive. I thought, I can't go back in time. And in fact, even if I can't, I won't find her. But I thought, perhaps I can relive her in space. So particularly, I took um, the train from Moscow to St. Petersburg and back. I got off at Bolagoye. Um, trying to find a vronsky didn 't found <laughs> <laughs> a few people on a mobile phone now someone <laughs> having a fag um, and uh, I, I had an extraordinary time, but I also wanted to think whether I could find out more about tolstoy uh, and I was particularly interested, and perhaps we 'll talk about this later because I want to talk about objects i part of what was driving me was I was thinking I thought a lot about Anna Karenina and her. Her handbag in the book. I might read a little bit from that later. But um, so I went to Yasnaya Polyana, which I always pronounce incorrectly. How should I say it? Yasna Polyana. Very good. It was getting better. <laughs> 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 and I went there to try and find out. I was very focused on what it was like for Tolstoy to write. And so I went around both his Moscow house and Yasnaya Polyana with actually um, a friend of mine who is a direct descendant of Leo. She's a, a Anastasia. She took me around the house. And we were looking, I was looking for what was his writing arrangement like? What is it like? How did he cope writing in space and time with other people? And as I was going, Anastasia kept on saying, look at these photos, they're for Sophia's. And I was going, mm-hmm. yeah, I was looking, I was looking, his dead. And she said, look at this pressed flower arrangement, it's Sophia's. And she kept on showing me these things. And I passed them by, but I was sort of interested in many things. And then when I got back home, I thought I did it. I did it again. I ignored her. I when actually what I was trying to write about in my existence was being a mother trying to create in space and time feeling there isn't enough time Uh, and so in some ways I started to write the book realizing that I wanted to connect with Sophia not with Leo far more and so um, and 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 that's sort of where she came into my writing process and she's someone I'm still very much learning about and I I wish I could go and do that journey again And really look more carefully Um, and I suppose yeah which made me I wanted to ask you whether you could tell us a bit more about who she was about her childhood and maybe her relationships with children or and her education and what do we know about
2: that well she had um, quite a lot more education for a girl of her time than than many uh, young women growing up. She was born in uh, 1844, so this is right in the reign of uh, Nicholas I. And we're talking about a Tsar who was extremely reactionary at that time. And young women, of course, um, weren't expected uh, to really get much of an education. It was, you know, learning to play the piano, doing a little bit of painting, if you were lucky. But she, Uh, was lucky to come of age at a time when there was a new Tsar on the throne, that's Alexander II, um, and he became Tsar in 1855, and this is at the time of the terrible fiasco for Russia of the Crimean War, and Alexander II was not a reformer, but he realised that he couldn't avoid um, introducing reform any any longer because the great failure of the Crimean War had just revealed how backward Russia was. And so the the chief reform, of course, was the abolition of serfdom. But uh, there were a whole raft of reforms in the early 1860s. So Sofia gets gets married in uh, 1862 when she's 18 years old. And she's able to take advantage of Russian society opening up um, one of the first things that happened when Alexander II became Tsar that he gave an amnesty to the Decembrists, and you know that was that was the great germ of the idea for war and peace and they came back to Moscow and St. Petersburg and you know Tolstoy is related to to one of them so, um, so- Sofia Andreevna she was the middle daughter of three daughters and Her father was a doctor, and her father came from a German background. She came from quite sort of unusual uh, background in a way, um, because her mother was from the aristocracy, but she uh, was illegitimate, Um, and she was grown, you know, grew up in a in a in a very um, well-to-do household. But she'd married Doctor Bares, and. He was a doctor in in the Kremlin. He he worked for the imperial household. So, what an amazing place to grow up. Um, and the Bears family had a very cramped apartment in in the Kremlin. And I, whenever I go to Moscow, and get get taken around the Kremlin, I'm always dying to sort of you know work out where exactly w- was they had their apartment. And the um, the Tolstoys got married there. So when when Tolstoy proposed. Um, one of the the amazing things is that the uh, events of his personal life are sort of reproduced in in his fiction, in particular in Anna Karenina. And so you can imagine um, the the chapters. Uh, you can sort of take take yourself back to the Kremlin. And again, it's a church that's sort of buried right in the private part of the Kremlin. You can't you can't visit it. It's a very small church. Um, but that's that was her childhood. But she grew up in a city which in the middle of the 19th century was um, what was referred to as a Balshaya derevnya a big village because Petersburg had been the capital since 1712 and there was a big divide by that stage between western-looking European St. Petersburg the capital and Moscow except that right in the middle of the 19th century it was beginning to uh, to wake up and so there was a quite a big rise of Slava feel um, thought and people were beginning to remember Moscow and remember the fact that it was sort of more Russian and so this was the environment for her and even though uh, women weren't allowed to go to university at that point she nevertheless was able to go on quite a few of the new uh, university courses that were opening up for women yeah which I'm you know uh, she Mm. had she had better education um, than than many people of her of her, of her period and, and i say that that's one of the things though that makes me want to commemorate her too because recently i've been reading about various um women in the the sort of modernist period who tried to set up artist colonies and have exhibitions and they were ridiculed um, and earlier this year there was an exhibition of Natalia Goncharova mm. it, the, at Tate Modern uh, mm. and uh, you know she um, also just attracted incredible opprobrium for painting a female nude for <laughs> example so it wow. was right for male painters to uh-huh. do it but not for women <laughs> and um, Sonia Tolstoy, uh, Sofia Tolstoy, she was also a woman who just got such a bad press because she was a woman, and I think that's a very interesting thing. You can probably relate to that, can't you, Sophie? <laughs>
1: um, well, yeah. Still in, I'm still in the publishing industry. I think it's yeah. it's difficult if you I, I, experiencing having written a memoir. If you write a memoir about you, as a woman about your domestic life, it can be seen as potentially petty or. Trivial, whereas if you're now scarred it's seen mm. as monumentally brave. <laughs> so those, those, those divisions still happen. Um, and I, I I think later on, um, I I sort of struck by how few models there must have been for her, for someone to have a creative life, and also for her kind of thinking about her becoming a mother. I mean, so she married at 18, when her,
2: when her first child was well, um, almost next, immediately after the next year. After, yeah, yes. the next yeah. year. Um, and she, she immediately went to Jasna Polyana. I mean one of the extraordinary things about Sofia Andreeva she never went abroad, she was so devoted to her husband and uh, I, I know that the one place she would have liked to have gone was, was by Reut. She would have liked to have gone and heard Wagner, but she never went abroad. And, and Tolstoy said, you know, would you, would you like for your honeymoon to, you know, to travel abroad? And she mm. said, no, I would like to start my family life, which was an amazing thing. And, and she got sort of sucked into her family life there and started having children. And as we know, they had 13 children. Mm. And she had many more pregnancies than that, yeah. um, actually. She had, a, you know, she had a very tough time. And basically, that was her life. She she didn't ever get to come back to Moscow. So Tolstoy did what he wanted the whole time, and she was looking after the family yeah. and running the household. And uh, it was it was it was hard for her. If you look at the the,
1: the architectural setup of the Moscow house, his his workroom has a backstairs to the garden, mm-hmm. and he has his dumbbells and all the equipment for all his wonderful hobbies. And whereas the rest of the house is set up enfilade, so one would have to walk through every room to get what one was doing. Doing, I, we, we thought about perhaps a few things we might like to read. I just wanted to read this very short extract from Sophia's diary, um, which sort of I then wove into what I was writing. So this is fifteenth of July, eighteen ninety-seven. I long passionately for music and to play myself but there's never any time and besides Lev is always working or sleeping and every sound disturbs him I try to convince myself that true happiness comes from fulfilling one's duty and I force myself to copy out all his writings and do all my other duties but sometimes I weaken and yearn for some personal happiness a private life and a work of my own rather than constantly toiling away for others as I have done for the whole of my life and then the feeling goes and I feel wretched Um, And I was just, yeah, I was really struck by, by that sense of it, um, of how, when I was trying to kind of how in some ways that sense of maternal grind doesn't go away. Um, I, I gave you the manuscript of my book. Rotherman very kindly read for me and she hadn't met me it was quite terrifying to hand a book which is partly about Anna Karenina to <laughs> the translator of Anna Karenina um, and it's, that felt a long time ago but actually writing it was even further ago for me now and my children much older and it's hard to imagine feeling like that as i did because i write a lot about the boredom of it and i I was writing about sophia writes of the boredom at all she complains about the nursing eating drinking sleeping and loving for caring for my husband's babies the collections of parcels and the sewing darning holes and attending to the children's piano lessons sometimes shopping toys for the children some tops a thimble warm gloves a brooch and then she says in her diary, i wish something would happen soon she copies out Tolstoy's diaries. There is no such thing as love. He writes, only the physical need for intercourse and the practical need for a life companion. I am, she writes, part of the household furniture.
2: Well, that's right. And there was there was no privacy, was there? Um, mm. be, because I mean, one one of the little bits I was going to read out was uh, the the part in Anna Karenina where Levin gives his future wife his diaries to read and. From that point on you know everyone read each other's diaries mm. and, and even <laughs> even even their children knew when they were writing their diaries that they would be read by other people in the house what what must that be like not being having any privacy at all <laughs> um this is uh this is yeah page 411 this is in um in part four it's uh very much what happened when when poor Sonia had to deal with her husband who was you know twice her age who'd lived a life you know he'd gone to fight in the crimean war himself and had you know uh, a life in st petersburg and he'd gone traveling in the caucasus she'd had a sheltered life And he had lots of relationships with young women on the estate, uh, peasant women. And poor Sonia had to to deal with this. Um, So this is what Tolstoy writes. It was not without an inner struggle that Levin handed her his diary. He knew that there could be and should be no secrets between them, and so he decided this was the right thing to do. But he had not fully thought through the effect it might have, (laughs) or put himself in her shoes. It was only when he came to their house that evening, before going to the theatre, went to her room and saw her tear-stained, pitiful, sweet face, made unhappy by the irreparable pain he'd caused, that he understood the abyss which separated his shameful past from her dove-like purity, and was horrified by what he'd done. Take those dreadful books, take them, she said, pushing away the notebooks that lay on the table in front of her. Why did you give them to me? No, it's all the same, it's better you did, she she added, taking pity in his despairing face. But it's awful, awful. Um, He bowed his head and was silent. There was nothing he could say. You won't forgive me, he whispered. No, I have forgiven you, but it's awful. His happiness was so great, however, that this confession did not shatter it, but merely gave it another nuance. She forgave him, but from that time on, he considered himself even more unworthy of her, felt even more abject before her morally and valued even more highly his undeserved happiness.
1: It's
2: extraordinary.
1: Yeah. Um, There's so many sort of it's such a collision there between authenticity and performance and the performance of <laughs> authenticity and how much of that is real as well. It but feels but she got into the style of it too. Mm. So,
2: you know, she wrote uh, these, these diaries too, knowing that her husband would, would read them. So you can never really yes. exactly tell. And, you know, for, for, mm. for Tolstoy, all of his writing was a kind of diary. It was a mm. way of trying to sort of articulate himself. <laughs> it was mm. a big project, wasn't it?
1: And I was, um, I mean, if we think about the difficulties and the lack of privacy, as well as architecturally, it's just physically, the the lack of contraception um, and the imposition and the insistence that she should breastfeed and this question that seems to sort of haunt Anna Karenina as well. Well, I was going
2: to read one other tiny little bit from Anna Karenina that concerns that because although we see an awful lot of Kitty um, representing... Um, Sofia Andreevna, you can also see an awful lot of uh, Sofia Andreevna in, in Daria too, the, the elder sis- sister. Yeah. And there's a point where um, Daria, Dolly, goes to visit Anna. And there's one of those uh, points where uh, there's a sort of horrified um, silence. And uh, she's she's you know she has this conversation with Anna about um, about contraception and now I've just I've just lost that actually we'll have to move on but um, <laughs> it's, it's it's one of the two points in the novel where there is sort of just a series of dots because you know he can't spell it out the other bit is where Anna and Vronsky consummate their love mm. and it's sort of again unspoken and then, they, then she's but, on her knees uh, yeah. uh, but but we know that um, Sonia herself had gone to St. Petersburg to consult a doctor because she was endlessly having children and she got ill. I mean, she, she had um, terrible illnesses as a result of uh, being continually pregnant. And Tolstoy, of course, didn't want to know about that. And I think it was a kind of retaliation putting this conversation mm. between Dolly and Anna in the book. So we know that Anna practiced contraception, and uh, this is something we know that Tolstoy really uh, was against.
1: And it's interesting how um, how perhaps Tolstoy wanted us to read that admission, where so yes, Anna says I will have no more children, mm. and then Dolly says, well, how do you know? And we get the asterisks. How how I read that as a twenty first century woman, or when I first read it at university, in the kind of when I was thinking that this was empowered, whereas it's meant to be, and it was meant to be the beginning of utter degeneration from that. It's how interesting how Anna is a very different character in time, or how she has become that, um, which fascinated me. And, and, and so in my sort of reinvention, one, I was, I was very drawn to thinking about uh, maternal space and what few spaces um, a woman might have had in the 19th century. Uh, and in some ways, when one is a mother of young children, what few spaces one has as well, still now. Um, and I partly began to write this book, as I said at the beginning, because I was drawn to the fact that Anna Karenina has this handbag that she, gives, she opens and closes on the train, the little red bag. And Nabokov asked the question, what was in Anna Karenina's handbag? He gave this, this lecture and he asked his undergraduates, he always liked to ask his undergraduates these details, but one of them, and I always held his hand, well, what was in Anna Karenina's handbag? Um, Later on when I was going to work one day I had to do an important meeting and I was going through my own handbag and pulled out, I was trying to look for a pen, pulled out a plastic maraca and and I just thought what's happened to me? I thought even my handbag has become (laughs) invaded by these children, a sense of no... so That's why I sort of, that became the beginning of the book but in my imagination What's in Anna Karenina's handbag is a a contraceptive device. I have no proof Uh, of this, but it ended up with me uh, investigating 19th century contraception. (laughs) Um, And also going on uh, a search for what Anna Karenina's handbag might have looked like, which was Mm. a very exciting trip around uh, all the things that are still kept as they were, because it was Sophia kept it exactly, she kept the house exactly as it was as much as she could on the day that. Tolstoy died is that correct? And I, th- I think yeah. that's
2: um, still the case today yeah. that it's one of the, f- yeah. the rare museums in uh, in Russia a lot of them were sort of burnt down by by you know angry peasants or just got destroyed in the war but Jasna Pagliano uh, even though the Nazis uh, occupied it for a while it has preserved everything as it was during Tolstoy's lifetime and in fact she opened it up to visitors very very soon after Tolstoy died because he was such a celebrity. Um, you know, she and her husband were front-page news around the world in the last few years of uh, mm. of his of his life.
1: So when I, I turned up to the, I said, "I'm looking for Anna Karenina's handbag." To yeah. so the keeper, and she, mm. some perplexity, and then, I, then we like, "No, I'm looking for Sophia Tolstoy's handbag collection." And we had to, they were hunting and hunting because they explained everything was in a drawer, uh, and so we had to go through. And finally, as the sun fell. In the, it was December in, in in Russia. They brought out this little red bag, and it was nothing like I'd imagined. I thought it would be a red leather handbag, mm. and it changes its name throughout the book, um, sort of from different words for bag in Russian. But but and, and but but it, it's a little, and so I I, I thought because she within but the sense of this small very small bag that she the sense of throwing it away when all is lost. Um, what did you make of
2: the uh, photographs and mm. the watercolours when you encountered them? So Anastasia was showing you around. Yeah. Were you expecting to?
1: I did. I mean, I, I did. This is where I could start to think Sophie. I'm a slow thinker, so I remember looking. Thinking, Sophie, you're being shown something very important here, and you're sort of not really concentrating. But there, there is a, a book of um, uh, her, her photographs, which I'll leave here for everyone to have a look at. But she was so she, she took up photography as a as a hobby, as many 19th century uh, men and women did, and it's wonderfully democratic art because it was cheap and exciting and it was possible to get good results she was oh, what did i make i was fascinated then and looking again at the amount of self-portraiture going on even though she got someone else to take the photograph she invented the selfie didn't she yeah, yeah. you're right actually <laughs> yeah um and and there's uh, i'm also i don't know struck by uh there's the frivolity of them there's quite a lot of dressing up and artfulness and fun About them. And when I thought about these photographs in relation to the story Family Happiness, I don't know if who's read that,
2: but it's a sort of. The early novel. It's an early
1: novel, which Mm. in some ways is slight, has hints of Anna Karenina. Mm. It's about a young woman called Masha who gets married and would quite like to go and have some fun Mm. and then realizes that she needs to give up all ideas of romance and embrace family happiness, which is sort of no romance. Um, And I thought this was the sort of the masher bit, the the fun bit. But she
2: didn't have much fun. So, you know, when their elder uh, sons needed to go to university, she managed to persuade Tolstoy that they needed a house in Moscow for the winter months, which was... Her great escape, really, because she'd, you know she'd been living down in Polyana in the bosom of the Russian mm. countryside for all that time, never going to parties, never really going to Moscow, and so they finally move and she gets to go uh, to parties with her elder daughters that are grown up now too, and put on nice dresses and you know Tolstoy was he wasn't much fun, was it you know he was <laughs> <laughs> um, he, 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 he'd just you know given up um, writing um fiction. Professionally, he was on this big sort of campaign against the Russian Orthodox Church. You know, he was learning Hebrew and Dutch in his spare time. He had all these weirdos coming to become, you know, Tolstoyans now. And uh, she, the, on the other side of the house, there was there was a, there was a lot of fun and gaiety. And she was desperate just to have a normal time. Mm. And you know, Tolstoy—he was—he was unbearable because he he'd made this big change in his life and he just expected her to follow and why should she absolutely
1: and and this sense of the the condemnation of pleasure which i think these photographs there's, there's something in these photographs that allows for pleasure and also that they're, they're rather collaborative often her daughters yeah. are involved or her children involved the idea rather than the notion of one artist sort of monologic mm-hmm. the idea of creativity as something that can be done together is
2: what strikes me about these photographs yeah. Um, but she's very, a very talented yeah. woman, um, and I was struck also by her. Her, her paintings, and in fact, um, this, is, this is for you, Sophie. The people oh. who are listening to the Pope podcast can't see this. This is a, a fridge magnet which I bought in the Tolstoy <laughs> Museum in Moscow <laughs> in <laughs> September, and it's a, it's her a watercolour of a cornflower. And Thank you. They're very delicate little paintings. And <laughs> That's so beautiful. She was painting, in that, I think she was painting that particular one in 1919, the last year of her, her life, actually. Sorry? Um, Oh, it was was bigger than that, yeah. So they they make them small for the fridge magnets. Uh, (laughs) And there were so few opportunities for for women to have artistic careers at that point. I mean, I was very struck when my editor at Oxford University Press decided that we should have this particular portrait on the cover of Anna Karenina. It's a portrait of uh, Louise Jopling by Sir John Everett Millet very famous portrait and it's um, in the National Portrait Gallery and the reason why it's interesting I mean it, it's got sort of you know slight oblique hints of Anna Karenina the sort of mm. defiance you know the curls escaping uh, but Louise Joplin was a painter who lived in England you know and we had civil divorce here in 1857 so you know you couldn't get divorced in Russia and there were so many women who lived unhappy marriages who were stuck in them and you had to go to the Orthodox Church to get their marriages undone and in England you know um, it was difficult to have a career as a painter if you're a woman and Louise Jopling found that she was routinely passed over for commissions and uh, I read her memoirs after we decided to use this um, portrait and discovered that when she was going to, to pose for it she decided she was going to wear her best Parisian couture so the, the, the dress she's wearing is absolutely beautiful so she wanted to look feminine and ladylike and you know smile nicely and she's looking quite sort of stern here mm-hmm. and she talks about the fact that you know she and Sir John Everett Millet who, and he was a good friend they got into an argument while they were while she was sitting for him because ov- obviously during the course of her daily life she didn't have the opportunities that he had. And so what he decided to do was to sort of paint a portrait of her as she actually really was. (laughs) And so there is that sort of defiance which does take us back to Anna Karenina. Mm. But... You know, we know from Anna Karenina that at the end of the novel, she's trying to write children's stories and she, there's, there's no opportunity. So it was the same for, for Russian women. They had to go abroad in order to have a career. It was so much easier in England. You know, it was difficult here, but it was way, way more difficult in in Russia. And, you know, when we think back to Sonia, who had these creative gifts, she, she could have been a fantastic photographer. She she was also a writer. Um, you probably don't uh, know that she wrote an aut- autobiography herself which is uh, this big oh, i can't it's a, it's at least the size of two war and pieces for those people what? who are hearing it yeah. um and we've got one book here yeah um she wrote her own reaction to the Kreutzer Sonata. Uh, She was an incredible woman. And the other thing uh, I've remembered in her career too, she also had a very successful career as a publisher. So when Tolstoy renounced the copyright on all his fiction, she was horrified because she needed some (coughs) income. She needed to be able to put food on the table. And so she did a very shrewd thing. She got on the train and went to St. Petersburg and consulted Anna Grygorovna Dostoyevsky, Dostoevskaya, Dostoevsky's widow, who had um, embarked on a very successful career after her husband's death publishing his writings. And so she did the same. And one of the little buildings that you can see when you go to the Moscow Tolstoy Museum is a sort of shed in the yard, which used to be her publishing business. And so she, did. she was a very, very brilliant woman in, in her in her age, I think.
1: I, I, I love the, the fact that you brought, brought out uh, Sophia as, as, a, as a writer, and that the, I mean, we did have a discussion about sort of in what ways is Sophia like Anna Karenina, or, or mm. not, and in many ways not. But there are those little flashes, aren't there? And, and in, my, in my theory, another thing that is in Anna Karenina's handbag, which would be obviously impossible because it's far too small. It is a manuscript, <laughs> that's the other thing. But the, the fact that she's trying to write that mm. book, um, and and this publishing, which I wasn't aware of at
2: all, really. I think I
1: kind of remember that there was the issue over copyright. Well,
2: well, Tolstoy very generously said, "Okay, well, you can have the right to publish all my fiction up until the end of Anna Karenina, which is when he had his big spiritual crisis." So that was what she published, and that's that what like she made the an extraordinary conversation to be having! Yeah,
1: really weird. But I, I I think also what struck me struck me is is that. Um, to pay tribute to her as well as a sort of as an archivist and curator yeah. and copier and enabler that this was something I don't know if, it, if I've, I'm going to phrase this correctly but I don't want to, in the sense of she was a creative artist in her own mm. right but there's something really heroic and beautiful about those people who who do help others even at their own personal expense and that what yes. do we know about the copying out
2: and well Funnily, you should mention that. It wasn't scripted. (laughs) (laughs) I've got open a rather beautiful little book. It's the autobiography of Countess Sophie Tolstoy. And it's um, a book that was published by the Hogarth Press in 1922. So that's... This is just three years after she died. She really wanted to put the record straight. And it was very hard because there were so many people who were against her because she was a woman, because she was the wife, and because she was against, you know, all the Tolstoyan. Ideas, but she was invited to sort of, you know, uh, write her version. And obviously a lot of it's idealised, but there is a rather nice part in this. Uh, This is one of the the first versions of the autobiography and um, she's idealising a little bit. But uh, she she writes, um, In copying, I was often astonished and couldn't understand why Leo Nikolaevich corrected or destroyed what seemed so beautiful, and I used to be delighted if he put back what he'd struck out. Sometimes proofs which had been finally corrected and sent off were returned again to N- Leo Nikolaevich at his request in order to be re-corrected and recopied, or a telegram would be sent to substitute one word or another. My whole soul became so immersed in the copying that I began myself to feel when it was not altogether right. For instance, when there were frequent repetitions of the same word, long periods, wrong punctuation, obscurity, etc. I used to point all these things out to Leo Nikolaevich. Sometimes he was glad for my remarks. Sometimes he would explain why it ought to remain as it was. He would say that details do not matter, only the general scheme matters. Mm. Um, so she got involved, and I, I remember when I was writing my chapter about Anna Karenina in the biography. Um, I, it was wonderful to know that it was Sonia who had the detail about what uh, Anna was wearing at that fateful ball in Moscow, you know, the, the, the necklace or the, the kind of dress. It was Sonia who had those details. So she had a creative input, didn't she? And life is lived in the details, I think.
1: Tolstoy even himself mm-hmm. might have said that later on.
0: You're listening to the John Sandoz Podcast. From Rosamond's translation of Anna Karenina to Sophia Tolstoy's diaries, all the books mentioned so far we have in stock, so telephone or email us with any orders. Passing round bottles of wine, bowls of sour cream and caviar, radishes and rye bread, Sophie and Rosmond begun to answer questions about Sophia's life, the first of which, did she live on into the Bolshevik era? The
2: thing is that, uh, this was a revelation to me when I was writing the end of my biography. Uh, I had a whole epilogue about what happened after Tolstoy's death, which is almost as interesting as what happened in his life because he was a hugely important figure in Russia. He The, the, the big choice in Russia was between Tolstoyism and, and Bolshevism. He was that important. So Sonia, by virtue of the fact that she was his widow, was was treated with with respect. Mm-hmm. However, the, there still was Tolstoy's great follower Vladimir Chetkov around and there was no, um, no friendly relationship there. So there was an awful lot of controversy about his legacy. But she was left alone in the house. Uh, but it was a very turbulent time. Tolstoy's own daughter Alexandra was actually arrested by the secret police and sent to prison for a while. so uh, it, was, it was a long while before things straightened out and eventually she realized that you know there was no pl- place for her and she, she ended up leaving and going to a, a, America did she
1: marry? the daughter the daughter, the daughter, yeah, daughter did the daughter. yes yeah um,
2: but, but Sonia yeah she lived on to see I, I think it was very hard for her uh, to see so much destruction.
0: The next question was concerned with Tolstoy's condemnation of pleasure.
1: Speaking as a a Tolstoy reader but not a Tolstoy expert, from from what I've... It it seems to to be that Tolstoy himself was kept on sort of Mm -hmm. uh, condemning his own appetite for pleasure, reading his diaries. He sort of draws up these extraordinary resolutions about what he must do. On day, kind of on the twenty ninth of the month, and then the thirtieth, he mm. goes slept with a whore. So there's a constant, even before he wrote Resurrection, this decided decision, <coughs> uh, this this desire for pleasure and a resistance to pleasure,
2: and and but there's, there's, there's a very strong ascetic strain mm. in, in in Russia, yeah. uh, and the Russians, you know, you can you can generalise, and and it's maybe a key. What do you mean still? <laughs> I didn't notice it when I went. <laughs> I was uh, hanging out with the right people. Su- su- <laughs> such such extremes, you know. There's there's never a middle ground, uh, mm. and that's why I love Chekhov so much because he he's the one who's sort of interested in the grey areas. And you know, Tolstoy himself, it's you know, it's either um, one thing or the other. Mm. So there is this sort of feel of sort of self denial. Mm. Um, and you know, when he when he had his crisis, apart from being vegetarian, you know. He, he didn't want to have anything to do with money anymore. He, he wanted to have a simple life living off the land. Um, and if you read his infamous treatise, What is Art? you know, He basically dismisses nine tenths of all art. And I've just been asked to give a, a lecture about the music in Tolstoy's life and actually I'm not sure that it would be a very good lecture because you know he he liked a little bit of Tchaikovsky, um, the, the 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 slow movement, the Andante in his in his first quartet because it was inspired by a folk song. But you know he went to uh, to Siegfried in in at the Bolshoi Theatre in 1894 and you know walked out halfway through it because he just thought it was ridiculous and. Um, there were so many things he just dismissed out of hand. So that, that you know, there was so much aesthetic pleasure too, mm. um, and, and the also adi- sexual pleasure though, as well. I think, and, and and the sense of
1: romance that whether the the notion of even a, a, attraction, the idea of being attracted to another person, or a frisson of aesthetic or sensual pleasure in another person in marriage was something that yeah. constantly, I think. I get the sense in reading Tussle that he was struggling with, and certainly that Sophia should give up struggling with it at all. So, so she couldn't be frivolous. She at couldn't all. be mm. frivolous. Or this mm. idea, I suppose flirtation, both as an idea of a, a metaphor of kind of feeling that one might just try out or explore something, or as an actuality. This is from their wedding anniversary, 1898. My wedding anniversary. Today I've been married to Lev for 36 years, and we are apart. It saddens me that we are not closer. There is a strong bond between us. I only wish it was based on something more congenial. Um, Mm -hmm. But this question of spiritual intimacy Mm -hmm. rather than... Mm -hmm. So, I don't know... That's from her diaries. That's from her diaries. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And then she read
1: it. I don't know, though, he was still reading them.
2: Uh, Maybe maybe not at at (laughs) the end. But they had had that big battle, though, didn't they? That, you know, he, he... I was going to ask about the diaries, I mean you quote that piece in Anna Karenina about Levin giving his wife his diaries and she breaks down in tears but he was originally off to the theatre my question is: Did he actually go to the
0: leave his wife behind, or don't we know? We don't. We don't. <laughs> don't <know that>. <laughs> <laughs> we
2: don't know that. Mm-hmm. Did Sonia have any female friends that she could sort of confide in and discuss? Well, good question. We're uh, asking about whether
1: she had female friends.
2: She had a she had a very close relationship with her younger sister Tanya, Tatiana Kuzminskaya, uh, who. Didn't have a particularly happy marriage, uh, and used to come with her children to Yasna every summer and spend, you know, at least a month living in one of the wings uh, there. So that was probably her closest uh, friendship. Actually, it was was her sister. So, and I think she lived for those times because it was pretty bleak in the winter. You know, if you're stuck in Russia. But they had um, a string of governesses and there was a lovely English girl called Hannah Tarsi who came and taught them how to cook plum pudding at Christmas <laughs> and things. <laughs> and, uh, Brilliant. I think she got quite close yes. to because, yeah. you know, they, were, they weren't, um, I mean, you know, Sonia herself was, was quite, quite young um, as, a, as a mum, for, and so some of them were, became, became friendly with her, I think. Did you speak any foreign languages? Did Sonia speak any foreign languages? Well, they all spoke French. Yeah, they all spoke yes. French. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, but I don't maybe, think she was a maybe real German. She, she, her father would have spoken German. I don't know that she um, knew German that well. Mm-hmm.
0: Did she have a good
2: relationship with her daughter ah well yes, the question is you know what what relationship did she have with her daughters i th- I found that absolutely fascinating when I was writing the the the, the history of the, the family because when the daughters grew up, um, actually the daughters all gravitated to their dad really? so for a long time she didn 't have a very good she had a good relationship with, with her eldest daughter tatiana Tanya she was always close to her but the daughters were definitely on their father's <coughs> side. She was much closer to her sons. And they were very wayward and she found it very hard because basically when they moved to Moscow, the younger sons had no dad. He he just sort of absented himself and they, they were very dissolute. How many survived of the 13 children? Well, um, there was the youngest child, uh, Ivan Vynyčka, who died at the age of seven. um, Mm -hmm. And there were numerous um, children before that who died in the middle of writing Anna Karenina. I mean, Anna Karenina is a very bleak novel. And so during the writing of that, two children died, as well as Tolstoy's old, old aunts. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Tolstoy's favourite daughter, Masha, Maria, died in 1906. So Mm -hmm. about half of them to yeah, adulthood, really, really, yeah.
1: mm-hmm. I find the kind of the the hidden stories of grief and bereavement in Anna Karenina are very very moving. You almost it took me a while when I, I was reading Leo Tolstoy's sort of recollections of childhood and reading about the experience of his mother dying when he was I forget five or young, young two two yeah. two, two. Very young, yeah. Um, and that just how at sea that left him. And then later reading Anna Karenina and looking at all the family trees and trying to work things out and then realizing that she is a character who has been bereaved, who's a bereaved child. And that sense of perhaps that um, here I am doing the unforgivable task task of trying to psychoanalyze fictional characters, but that sense of Tolstoy creating a person who is reckless Mm. with other people's hearts because something has been broken along yeah, the way yeah. um, which which i find very interesting um but the the sense of uh parental grief um especially at the loss of i'm going to mispronounce their son's name but, but um but but the, that that sense of that their, their their golden one, chi- yeah, girl, yeah. A little boy their, yeah, their, yeah. their golden mm. child being being da- the death of that is just unimaginable and there are photographs of him and still at Yasnaya the one of the central photographs by sophia is of him when you go through the rooms and Anastasia stopped Mm. and we stood there for a long time it felt like the family was still in grief. And that was
2: 1895 and I think that was the last time that Tolstoy and Sonia were sort of together I think after that they really uh, went apart but Mm -hmm. I mean I think it's uh, as much as I revere uh, Sonia Tolstoy's memory and I think you know she's been unfairly um, uh, treated over the over the years she also was human and when i was writing the biography of her husband i, I you know i was trying to be objective about her and I, I think uh she had her her failings too didn't she because she sort of uh, in a way you know she could have um let let whole story just go she sort of was so involved emotionally she mm. so, she didn't want to let go and uh think uh in a way she um ma- made her life more more difficult
1: i i think that's part of for me the attraction that she does seem quite faulty yeah slightly dysfunctional
2: annoying
1: vain um and for i mean for all in in not in that that's that sort of I, I love reading the diary entries where she's talking about sort of they say my, they say I look much younger than my years yeah. because of my colour. It's fantastic. I yeah. mean, as well as, I mean, I think her diaries reveal that she was a bigot and an anti-Semite and all sorts of <laughs> other things that either put some abnormal for the time and some just particularly her, her grown qualities. But yeah. she was, you know, very imperfect, but also rather wonderful.
0: Towards the end of Leo's life, as he became increasingly preoccupied with religious questions, distance grew between him and Sophia. The next question asks how their relationship suffered in these years.
2: Well, she had to deal with uh, the invasion of all the Tolstoyans, and in particular, this imperious, rather satanic figure of Vladimir Tchetkov. Not satanic, but he was um, absolutely driven, and he claimed all of Tolstoy's attention. They had a very, very um, an almost unhealthily close relationship. So it was very hard for her to deal with someone else in their marriage, basically. And she did become a little bit unhinged. <laughs> I mean, she, she she tried to commit suicide a couple of times and became rather paranoid and things. And um, but 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 then Tolstoy was such a famous figure, and you know, it, it, so much attention was on him that uh, it's uh, it's possible to you know forgive her for her frailties. I think, isn't mm. it?
1: I think you've just articulated much more eloquently what I was trying to say <laughs> about the sense of her as a curator and, and that what you, in the sense of, in, in the copying almost a sense of embodiment or, or, or being two people, being one, or and a commitment that, but I'm, I'm in celebrating, I do think it is honest that between the lines of her diary, she does sound frustrated, no matter what her vocation was, when one ha- can have a vocation and simultaneously be frustrated by its difficulties. But that 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 was central to her, and that it is that there are many ways of being creative and alive and free, and some of them may involve being deeply entwined with the life of another mm. rather than mm. single. But I just, e- but even within w- those separate creative acts, what struck me was how collaborative they are, or just the mm. making of a family for her was a, a real, a real was, was her legacy that was so important to her at least from my, my very much a layperson's understanding of her. I I grew up in Rockland County, in the the state of New York, and I remember
2: as a child that there was a Tolstoy Foundation, I believe in New City. Could you explain what what the purpose of that, who set that up and what was the aim of, of the foundation? I think, I'm pretty sure that was Alexandra Tolstoy's foundation. So that's the Tolstoy's youngest child who survived into adulthood, Alexandra, who became very very close to her father in the last days and uh, she had a particularly bad relationship with her mother um, and she was the one who got arrested by the Bolsheviks and was um, appointed the sort of Commissar of Yasnaya Palyana immediately after the revolution and uh, left Russia just um, before things became really bad so she um, saw the light really about how ghastly it was going to be in Russia and you know the the Tolstoyan movement was really quite quite big in Russia in 1917 and the Tolstoyans thought great you know uh, Tsarism has fallen now we can have our Tolstoyan communes and it's such an irony that in this communist (laughs) state they had these Tolstoyan communes which were actually the perfect uh, ideal of of a communist life because they they worked on the land and they didn't do money and everything was pulled and um, but they they soon ended up being persecuted so there were lots of vegetarian restaurants in Moscow they were all shut down and the Tolstoy communes um, and I write about this in the last chapter of my, my book they all ended up going to Siberia and being sent to the camps eventually uh, so in the in the pre-revolutionary time all the Russian sectarians, like the, the Dukhobors who Tolstoy helped to go to Canada, you know, they were living on the edges of the empire because it was sort of safe, you know, away from the authorities, and, and the Tolstoyans did that. So, Alexandra Tolstoy managed to escape that fate herself by going to America, and she set up this foundation, I think, to sort of promote her, her father's works in the, in the true sense. Yeah, so she, she lived to a ripe old age. She was a, a, a wonderful woman. She, you know, I think was, was quite a prominent speaker.
0: That's all from Sophie and Rosamond do check our website or follow us on Instagram or Twitter for upcoming talks, book signings and catalogues. We hope you can join us next time. Thank you for listening.